Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody back to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me, for giving me your ears. I'll tell you what, we have such a fun guest on today's show. Have you ever met somebody who's so interesting when you talk with them and you think, man, this person should have their own TV show? This is exactly how I felt about today's podcast guest, and he beat me to it. This guy already has his own TV show. On the program today, I have Dr. Ole Alkenbrock. He is the Nat Geo star of the TV show, The Wildlife of Dr. Ole, and he runs a practice in Northern Arizona where he has been working with exotic and large animals in veterinary medicine for over 30 years. This guy has worked with all different types of amazing animals, including grizzly bears, bighorn sheep, bobcats, jaguars, Mexican wolves, pronghorns. The list goes on. This guy is a wealth of knowledge. And I know a lot of you listening to the show are wanting to pursue an animal-related career. Some of you do want to become veterinarians. And a lot of you have sent me DMs on Instagram saying, hey, when are we going to have another vet episode? Because I believe our last vet episode was with Dr. Evan Anton. And so I'm so happy that Dr. Ole agreed to come on the show. This guy is awesome. And his tagline is the wild man who is not your typical vet. Yeah, this guy was great. He has amazing stories. So if you want to get into the vet field, you want to work with animals, this is the episode to listen to. He gives you excellent insight. Now, I encourage you as always to check out the after show. The after show is where it's at. It's where we get more in depth with the interview. So if you are an Animals to the Max podcast fan, listen and head on over to the after show. All you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash animals to the max. I asked Dr. Oli in the after show the most difficult animal he's ever had to track and trap. The animal will shock you. I also asked him some of his favorite animals to work with and the ones maybe eh, not so much. We also talk about jaguars in Arizona in the after show, which is just, I love hearing about jaguars. And I asked him about jaguars eating mountain lions. Can you believe that? Yeah. So check out the after show. I will put the links in the show notes. Before we get to the interview, please make sure to rate and review the show. I also want to encourage you, if you want more animal content, to head on over to my YouTube channel. My YouTube channel is uh, just rapidly growing, and I just, I'm so excited about it. We actually just surpassed over 108 million monthly video views on our YouTube channel. So yeah, that's insane. I just blows my mind. 108 million YouTube views. I actually, I just was like, wow, I should probably start whitening my teeth. That's a lot of people. So anyway, um, <laughs> that was a joke, but seriously. So I encourage you to head on over to the YouTube channel. And as you'll hear in the interview, Dr. Oli is starting his own YouTube channel as well. We will include the links in the show notes. So please make sure to go subscribe to both of those. Okay. With that said, let's get to it. Dr. Oli, welcome to the show. I got to tell you, I really appreciate you having me here. Uh, we both share something in common, and I love talking about it, and that's the wild, wide world of animals. Yes, and I love this because your PR team sent me something. You are a described wild man who is not your typical vet. I probably have one of the more unique practices around, I would believe. Um, I've traveled internationally in my practice doing work on wildlife and uh and at the same time i'll see your dog cat 
sheep, goat, pig, horse, cow, pterodactyl. I'll see anything that walks <laughs> through the doors at the office. And um, so, you know, it's pretty hard to just nail me down in one spot for a long time. Yeah, I've got a pretty wild practice. Yes, and you've been, since 1994, you have uh, ran the White Mountain Animal Hospital in northern Arizona. That's correct. And I actually built, in the area, I, I built three other hospitals. Wow. So I was quite an ambitious uh businessman at one point trying to build up a what's now very common like groups of hospitals that that work together and uh and you know i went full circle and, and decided i liked being a solo practitioner better so that's the way i've left it for the last 15 years um it allows me to free up my time more to go out and help wildlife and do the kind of work i like to do uh, so yeah, it's, uh, but it's been a great place. It's a perfect four season community in, in Northern Arizona. We got a ski area. We got the only live streams with trout in them in Arizona. We have all, all we have deer, elk, Mexican gray wolves, black bears, you name it. I mean, it's just a wildlife packed area in the state. It shocks me. So I, I am so embarrassed to say this, but I went to Northern Arizona this January to go to the Grand Canyon and I was shocked to see like snow in Arizona and, and it was eight degrees. I don't think people think of Arizona as having like mountains and snow and streams. I think of the desert. Right. It's kind of divided in half. So the North, if you just draw a line across the middle of the state, um, it, it, it is the la largest contiguous stand of ponderosa pine in the United States. And, and we, but we have, you know, all the life zones. It goes clear up above timberline, and it's just an amazing, amazing state. Arizona gets to boast at, at many, it's been more than once, that it had the coldest temperature in the United States and the hottest temperature in the United States. The White Mountains, where I am, is where the coldest temperatures have been recorded in, in a single year. Wow, and how, how cold does it get? Oh, below zero. You know, I think it's been 12 to 18 below zero in this area before. And, uh, you oh. know, just bundle up. It's going to get warm in a couple of days. So I, that's the way it works. I can't even believe it. So my wife and I went to the Grand Canyon in January thinking, oh, this would be great. Let's go somewhere warm because we live in Idaho. And my God, we tried camping one night and it was eight degrees. <laughs> Yeah, did you go to a hotel instead? So, okay, so we camped one night, and then my wife is like, I am, I'm done, we're not doing this. So, yeah, we ended up going to, to a hotel. She's like, why are we roughing it? Like, it makes no sense. And it was interesting because, <laughs> you know, the campgrounds were, you know, pr you know, almost empty, and it's like, yeah, there's a reason why. No way. Yeah. yeah, did you did you hike the Grand Canyon at all, or just uh, oh. just sightsee? Dude, I wanted to so bad, and we got all the hiking gear. But my wife is terrified of heights, and right before we were to go down the Bright Angel Trail, she went to a souvenir shop and saw this book they had advertised called "The Deaths <laughs> of the Grand <laughs> Canyon" Grand with Canyon. skulls. I know the book. Yeah, with skulls on it, and I and she was like, "I'm not going down. I'm not going down." So we just walked around the uh, perimeter of the South Rim. But yeah. Yeah. What's interesting about that book is um, is most of it's suicides. It's not really? accidental deaths. People really? go there to kill themselves. I mean, they. I don't know anything about the 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 mental health issues behind suicide, but why they would pick such a picturesque spot to do it is is beyond me. That's terrifying. That's the last way I'd want to go. And it's crazy because I thought, I don't know, dude, I just, I guess I was unfamiliar with the Grand Canyon. I thought it was just like one, I know it was big, but like one stop where you just see, you know, there's one place where you just look at the famous overlook, but no, it's, it's massive and there's 
so many overlooks and there's a lot of the areas don't have guardrails. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, you, I mean, people have accidentally fallen off, you know, taking selfies, backing up or, you know, doing whatever they were going to do to, you know, make this horrible mistake. But I actually had a, a lot of work on the North rim of the Grand Canyon at one time. Um, bison are not native wildlife to Arizona, but the Arizona Game and Fish introduced bison into Arizona back in the 30s, and there's a large herd uh, that they dedicated one of their properties to. And over whether it be hunting pressure or habitat issues, um, those uh, those bison have now moved on to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. So I was hired to collar, you know, radio collar a uh, bunch of the bison there. We wanted to see how they were moving and where they went, and did they move migrate or or are they staying on the Grand Canyon? So I jumped in a helicopter and we went up and put a bunch of darts and some bison and radio collared them. And, and it was really cool because it was wintertime and it was right after a snow. And we had permission to fly below the rim, which no other helicopter does because they wanted us to collar these, these bison. And you would not believe the views of, of, of the Grand Canyon after a fresh snowfall below the rim. It's it, just absolutely amazing. Oh, and I hear the north is the best one to go to because it's the least, amount, I guess, the least visited out of the out of the rims. Yep. And actually, uh, I did a what we, you know, kind of an Arizona challenge is the rim to rim hike where you start on the south rim and hike to the north rim or vice versa. And I did that many years ago and. Um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But now people try to do it in a day, you know, wow. it's, you know, with all the extreme athletes. It's crazy. Yeah. I was so, huffing and puffing even back then. <laughs> yeah. And so you've done the, the Bright Angel Trail. Do you know what, what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Oh, was it that treacherous? I want to report back no. to my wife. Oh, it's not. No, bad. but okay. you, you got to yield to all the mules. There's a lot of mule trains that go up and down that trail. So, oh. you know, that can be a little intimidating for people that aren't comfortable or, you know, with a big string of pack mules going by or people mules. Uh, they don't necessarily, they do pack supplies down there, but, um, you know, go down to Phantom Ranch. There's a there is a uh, campground down there. Um, we also got involved in a study with the uh, mule deer down there that were um, not acting like mule deer so much anymore. So one of the things that they wanted us to do was to you know find a way to 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 make these mule deer you know more afraid of people because you know oh. they were coming in and feeding and then sometimes showing aggressive behavior because they get too um, habituated to human presence um so anyway it's wildlife packed area uh grand canyon is beautiful now we got california condors yes yeah, i so. was oh i wanted to see that and i so i'm uh, about 45 minutes from boise which I don't know if you're aware, but Boise is the condor capital of the world. The Peregrine Fund uh, helped. P Fund. Yeah, the P I Fund. Worked, yeah. I worked with, I, when I was in vet school, I worked with the P Fund. They were had a big presence in Fort Collins when I went to, I went to Colorado State University. So they had a huge, uh, huge presence in Fort Collins. And, and it was kind of at the tail end of the, the recovery of the Peregrine. And uh, but all their breeding barns were still there. So, yeah. And I actually got to work with the uh, with the pea fund with California condors at one time. It's magnificent birds, you know, 25 pounds, 10 foot wingspans, um, just a magnificent bird. And you can see them flying across northern Arizona, southern Utah all the time. Now. Really? All the time? Yeah. There's a place just 
to the east, not kind of north and east of the Grand Canyon called the Vermilion Cliffs. And that is their central station and their breeding location and all their breeding pens that they use as kind of a launching spot for the condors to take off of. And so uh, when I was there, there was probably a, maybe a dozen of them just slope soaring over my head. Um, again, 10 uh, foot wingspans, gigantic birds. Um, and I, I was just in awe watching these things. And, and condors are actually very social birds. They're, um, I'm kind of a raptor nut. And we always think of raptors as being solely sole and solitary. They aren't group hunters except for Harris's hawks, which are also native to Arizona. They hunt like a wolf pack in groups. Um, but for the most part, raptors are pretty solitary, but condors like groups and uh, they, you know, have a, a very intricate uh, social strata that they operate in. And it's pretty amazing when you actually dig in and kind of learn more about them. Wow. So and I have a question because I wanted to see the condors and the gal at the souvenir shop said, oh, it's just too cold for them. Was that a lie? No. Really? Okay. So she, oh, well, so no, she well, knew what I she mean, was talking I, about. I mean, no, they're there year round. That's what I was they thinking. Don't they, they don't migrate. Yeah. Um, she just said it was too cold in January for them. They're usually here on the cliffs. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. On the, maybe in the Grand Canyon, but on the Ver Vermilion Cliffs on the other side, no, I think they live there year round. And, you know, they, but they've actually now documented condors raising a successful clutch in the Grand Canyon. And that was the goal when they, when they were originally reintroduced in this area. You know, the way I look at California condor is, you know, they're a throwback from the ice age. You know, if you think about it, there's some pretty big animals walking around, giant sloths and mammoths. And when those guys took the big dirt nap and, and assumed room temperature, it took a pretty big bird to help clean up that mess. And so, um, and then they finally, you know, out of necessity after these big animals disappeared, they moved to the coast and they fed on dead cetaceans or whales or, you know, carcasses like that. And so hence the name California condor, but they were once native to all this region in the Southwest and probably across the U.S. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Well, next time we go back, I'm going to go to those cliffs. What did you say? The, the, the ver, I almost said ver, the vermilion. Vermilion cliffs. I'm writing it yeah. down. Okay, Dr. Early, I'm writing it down. I want to see one in the wild, man. I, I felt like I almost saw one in the wild driving through southern Utah, but I'm not sure. So I just, it was a massive, but I don't know. I don't know. I talked to my friends at the P-Fund. They said it could be a possibility, but I don't know. I guess we'll see. Well, they're cliffs. magnificent birds. I've actually had the pleasure of working down in South America and 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 and, and saw uh, Andean condors mm. as well. And just again, massive birds, big birds that are um, just an intricate part of the ecosystems throughout the Andes. It's amazing. Oh, and their wingspans too are massive. Yeah. I've worked. Oh my God, I've only I've worked with a female. Um, she only I think it was like an eight foot wingspan. It was just amazing. I mean, that was small <laughs> compared to what they can get to. So, um, anyway, so Dr. Oli, take me back. We have a lot of uh, a lot of listeners actually who request vet episodes and. I hate to uh, put you up against this guy, but the last vet we had on was Dr. Evan Anton, the People Magazine sexiest vet. <laughs> well, I know. Uh, actually, he was in GQ too. I I can't claim uh, rest my laurels on my good looks, so I have to do it some other way. And uh, and at one time, one of the television shows that I've done, I've done a couple of them. Um, they, uh, they, they were the, the working title was um, Dr. Oli, the most interesting vet in the world. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll take that one instead. And 
And I, I, I was waiting for the, I wish it would have stuck because I was going to wait for those Dos Equis endorsements, you know, to start rolling in. <laughs> so, but yeah, when I, I, I I'll, I'll take the most interesting bet in the world. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So tell me, uh, just tell me your backstory, how you got into the field and, you know, we'll kind of go from there. Well, I believe in the art of storytelling, it's always best to start at the beginning. So a little bit of history. I'm a native Arizona and I was born and raised in Phoenix and back then Phoenix, and I'm not dating myself, but Phoenix was a lot smaller than it is now. And the, the desert was our backyard. And um, what you and I share in, in common is that, as you know, the desert is filled with reptiles. And so as a kid, I was a kind of a herp nut too, you know, and uh, you know, and I collected lizards and I collected snakes and I, I collected frogs and toads and, you know, held them as pets and then I'd let them go. You know, I never kind of made them permanent parts of my life. You know, I've uh, had um, green iguanas and desert iguanas in the same room with each other. And, and anyway, it was all great. I mean, I could bring these animals home at will. And but my mom drew the line at rattlesnakes and Gila monsters. I tried that. <laughs> so she said, no, no, nothing venomous. Uh, OK, I'll take it back. So um, but, you know, I, I, I grew up um, doing just about everything every other kid did. Played baseball, you know, went hunting and fishing with my family, um, uh, played football, just the usual stuff. But I was equally, equally um, content to be dropped off at the Phoenix Public Library where I sat down and read everything animal that I could. I mean, I just go to the science department and I'd pull books off the shelf and I'd just sit down. I mean, any animal that interested me, I don't care if it was North American, African, Asian, uh, you know, I wanted to learn about it. And so, so I was kind of nerdy that way. And school was never a difficult thing for me. It just kind of got in the way of other things I wanted to do. So I was an average student. Um, I went to what I call my practice college years um, right after high school. Um, I, uh, I, w- I worked at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum as a zookeeper while I was going to college. It's an awesome place. If anyone ever goes to Tucson, it is a phenomenal facility that you ought to check out. But I, I was a zookeeper there. And then um, after two years, they asked me to leave with a 1.6 grade average. Oh. Um, I, which I'm, uh, which, but I learned how to drink beer and play foosball. Really well. <laughs> there you so, go. There you go. So were, were you part I, of a? Uh, were you part of a frat, a fraternity? No, never oh. was. I was. I, w- I came from a pretty middle class background, and um, I was lucky to you know at least get tuition help and tuition and books um uh help from my family so that's why i worked then i was lucky enough to land a job at the asdm you know which was a way cool place and i got straight a's and all i was actually a wildlife biology major then Hmm. and i had straight a's in all my wildlife classes it was just the algebra and english and yeah it was it was it was in my way so I took a couple of years off and and sowed those wild oats, and I ended up uh, going back to school with an earnest uh, desire to become a veterinarian. And in order to become a veterinarian, you have to have good grades. So I, I learned how to become a professional student, but I still worked, and I worked for a veterinarian all that time that I was uh, in my undergrad. And... Uh, 
you know, worked, took summer school, everything just, and really tried to nail those grades. And I actually got accepted to vet school after three years of wow. undergrad, which is pretty unusual. And four years of vet school, nine years of college total. Um, it was, uh, it was a long ride, but I'm, I'm really happy I did it. And when I, when I got to vet school, I thought, well, what am I doing here? You know, I don't see myself in a small animal hospital that smelled like pine salt spaying dogs for my entire career, nor did I see myself doing farm calls, all of which I love. I mean, there, there's not an animal that I will not work on. And then I've got a stint in my senior year. Uh, an elephant died at the Denver Zoo, and they oh. asked if anyone from uh, the vet school wanted to help with a necropsy, which is an animal autopsy. And my hand was the first one that went up, and I stayed myself and the senior zoo veterinarian at the Denver Zoo. Um, we were there till 1030 at night, finishing that necropsy and taking samples, and, and he immediately offered me a job. So um, I started out as a zoo veterinarian initially, and then uh, I ended up with a, uh, well, I had to go back to Arizona. I owed Arizona four years of my life because they helped pay for part of the tuition, and that was the agreement. So I came back and this is, I got into a very busy mixed animal practice where I was, you know, everything that walked through the door, kind of like my practice is. And I learned, and I learned how to, you know, handle a lariat and how to handle cattle and how to handle horses and how to put a halter, make a war bridle, you know, and in, 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 on large animals. And then I honed my craft and my skills you know, on the small animal side too. And eventually I was offered a job by the Arizona Game and Fish as their first veterinarian. So that was my first wildlife job. Wow. And uh, no one knew back in those days what to do with a wildlife veterinarian. So um, working for a government was challenging for me. And I decided that I would go ahead and go back into private practice and I took a lot of, and during the time I was with Game and Fish, I got exposed to a lot of endangered species work. And so, um, and at the time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, if you are a veterinarian working on an endangered species, they required that you had experience with endangered species. So I kind of walked away with, 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 with a, a you know, a, 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 a flower in my in my cap, if you will, because I had this experience, and so I'm still doing endangered species work, and it was um, um, and a lot of a lot of bighorn sheep work, because bighorn sheep are big ticket items um, in terms of the game species. So we did a lot of disease research on bighorn uh, bighorn sheep, and it was I was still doing a ton of wildlife work as I started my private practice. And that was 28 years ago. Wow. So I have been doing wildlife work for close to 30 years. Still do. I'm a, I still am a zoo veterinarian for a number of zoological institutions. And, um, and that's what, you know, that's where my passion is. It's, 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 it's the natural resource. It's mother earth. It's, you know, it's those animals that would otherwise not have the benefit of veterinarian working uh, on their side. So uh, I would, you know, that's my goal is to just keep going until I'm in a wheelchair and have a drool cup. I'm No one's going to make me retire. They're going to have to fire me first. Oh my gosh. Well, you own the <laughs> practice too. So I think you're, I think you're, I think you have job security. <laughs> <laughs> 
To a certain extent, actually, I um, like most practices, it's uh, uh, my staff is entirely female, so I pretty much work for them yep. more than more than more than I, I act like the boss. It's it keeps the peace and it's a better way to be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how exciting. I mean, oh, my God. Zoo vets. I entered uh, alongside a zoo vet one summer and I just my God, my eyes. I mean, just the animals they get to see. This is going to be such a tough question for you, but what is the most exotic animal you've ever seen? Exotic. I mean, I'm well, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I, well, I, I was, I served as an anesthetist for a, a foundation that traveled around the world doing, um, uh, uh, dental work on exotic predators, but mostly. And there was a turpentine Creek, um, wildlife reserve i think i'm probably saying that wrong but it's out in arkansas yep yep and they actually had a liger oh my god and i always thought that was just something that napoleon dynamite talked about you know until i actually saw there was you know ligers but you know all creatures great and small wise and wonderful bright and beautiful it doesn't matter i think all of them all have their magic uh my if people ask me what my spirit animal is it's definitely a river otter Oh yeah. Um, any kind of otter. I mean, to go through life having a, a great diet. I'm a great, I'm a big fish eater. So um, not only that, but have you ever seen an otter have a bad time? No. Just, they're just all, no. They're just always having a good time. Always, 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 always charismatic. So, always. Yeah, and um, and then like I said, I'm, I'm I, 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 after my 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 herp phase. I really got into raptors and so much so that I'm a master falconer to this oh day. My but, God. Um, and I really, really enjoy learning, observing, bird watching in general, and particularly raptors. Um, it's kind of a passion of mine as well. Wow. So do you have your own personal falcons? Not currently, no, uh-huh. but I've flown just about every North American species and hybrid thereof, including the peregrine falcon. Um, every one of the Falcons, um, I've flown a jeer, uh, a jeer, peregrine, mm-hmm. prairies, merlins, kestrels. I've had them all. Um, and, uh, and then on the hawk side, of course, red tail hawk, um, and, you know, falconry is really one of the most highly regulated sports there is. You oh. have to start out, um, it, depending on the state, there could be both state and federal permits required to be able to obtain a bird you start out as an apprentice for two years under a master falconer um, or a a general falconer and then and you're only allowed certain birds as an apprentice and then after that you're generally uh, uh, what they call a general falconer for about five years and then you move on to master falconry and masters are um, are the only ones that are allowed to fly eagles Mm. and so and one time it was peregrines too but now that you know i mean the peregrine falcon is the is the poster child for the Endangered Species Act in my mind. I mean, I, I rarely see prairie falcons anymore, but I see peregrines everywhere. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just been a real success story. And and with my ongoing efforts and some of the, the programs I'm involved with, this, the Sonoran pronghorn antelope recovery mm-hmm. uh, and the Mexican wolf uh, recovery that I've been with for decades as the, as the program veterinarian, um, uh, it's just been really... Uh, a passionate heartwarming thing for me to be involved in because I'm actually putting at at my small level as the veterinarian this as I am I'm putting animals back on the landscape 
And, so you know, cool. that is that I can't tell you how much, uh, how much that warms my heart because you know, in the, in the pyramid of wildlife management and specifically as we're talking about it, endangered species recovery, you know, what I am as a wildlife veterinarian is I'm just a small cog in the wheel, but I'm a necessary cog in the wheel. And uh, I get a big kick out of being, having done this for so many years that I've innovated a lot of um, techniques. And, you know, we used to have a huge mortality issue dealing with, with pronghorn. They're very flighty. I mean, they, they're put on this planet during, they're an ice age throwback as well, uh, put on this planet to, you know, feed saber tooth cat and, um, and the, the North and particularly the North American cheetah, which was a huge cheetah um, that could run 60 miles an hour. There is no predator in North America that can run 60 miles an hour to this day. And so a pronghorn's natural defense is to run and they don't quit running for 20 miles, maybe. <laughs> so they, when you actually handle them and, and go to do things for them that they don't want to do, they, they run. And so we've developed handling techniques and, and, and drug protocols that we can now have a zero mortality pronghorn event. And it's just been really rewarding that I've been part of that. So, um, and you know, that started, uh, 1967, I think the Snorn pronghorn was listed and there was a pretty steady population of them on, on, uh, in Arizona of about 120, 130 animals. And then in 2002, we had a horrific drought and that population dropped to under 20. Oh. And that's an unsurvivable number. They cannot breed themselves out of that mess. So we ended up going to work internationally with the country of Mexico and we, they had more pronghorn and we established a, um, a predator-proof predator pen um, for breeding these guys. And we started a pronghorn factory. And I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty proud to say today, uh, we did this in about 2005. Today, there's 300 plus pronghorn on the on the on the landscape right wow. now. Wow! From 20, from that, less than 20. That is, see, you're making a difference. You know, I mean, that, yeah. I mean, truly should make you feel so good. And it's about an animal. I hate to say it, but it's not as charismatic as something like a grizzly bear or something you've worked with or the wolves. But I think pronghorn are so cool, and they don't get enough credit for how cool they are here in North America. Well, and this is the Sonoran pronghorn, which yes. is a subspecies, so it lives in the desert. Now, yes. why would an Ice Age animal choose the desert to live in? Who knows? And you can actually kind of see differences in them. They're smaller, they're finer, um, but, you know, it, it, you know they, they are just amazing animals. But yes, you know, even the wolves, wolves are a very passionate species. You know, you're either pro-wolf or you're con-wolf. And, oh. and uh, you know, there's just a lot of politics, biopolitics involved in, in wolves. And as you know, what's going on in Montana and Idaho, and man. The, oh. and, and, and the Yellowstone wolves and, you know, what we deal here with New Mexico and, uh, and Arizona with the Mexican gray wolf recovery. You know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm there to be their veterinarian. I have no political siding with it one way or another. And, you know, to me, they have a place on, on the landscape. And they should be managed and managed correctly. And it shouldn't be done from a, a emotion. It should be done from a, a point of, um, of of reconciliation and, 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 and both sides kind of coming to some level of agreement. But it's been pretty cool since I have um, saw the first two Mexican wolves released back in 1998. 
and I can go out my back door and, and, and I've seen wolves on my property. Wow. Um, I've gone up into the mountains and heard them howl. And, you know, I, that sound is pretty cool. And, uh, I just, um, uh, you know, I, and I'm part of that. I'm part of that. That's and it's so cool. very, very exciting. Yeah. What is the population of the Mexican wolves right now? You know, the last year's count was 160, 170 animals God. In, in the recovery range. Okay. And um, so that's a success story. And I don't know how many packs that was. Mexican wolf it tends to be a smaller pack size than okay. what, you know, he's like the Druid pack that was so famous in Yellowstone that had, you know, 20 individuals in it. We don't see packs to, uh, routinely that size in the Mexican wolves. But they do the same thing that uh, the wolves up in Yellowstone do. They they eat a lot of elk. You know, that's their that's typically their main prey. And different than the northern wolves that can weigh 100, 120 pounds, our Mexican wolves weigh about 60 to 70 pounds. So what is the consensus there? Because I am in Idaho and people are just – it is such a hot topic. I, I literally get death threats when I talk about – I mean seriously on my social media when I talk about wolves and people get so fired up. And uh, what is the consensus in Arizona? Do people like the wolves or is it just as controversial as it is in Idaho? Just as controversial. Um, you do have the, the livestock producers – yeah. Um, you have also the the sportsman's group, you know, that look the wolf as their enemy. And I don't know why that is. I always kind of equate it to, you know, we evolved side by side with wolves. Wolves are family units. We're family units. You know, there's almost a stigma to them, almost like the black cat thing, yeah. you know. And uh, I don't know if it's evolutionary, genetic. I, I don't know where people's, you know, obvious hatred of wolves come from or love of wolves come from. Um, but it is, it's, it's a, it's a sticky topic in terms of, you know, people are fascinated by them or they loathe them, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, it's, it, I, and I think that is probably worldwide and just not, uh, localized to Idaho, Montana, um, area and New Mexico, Arizona area, you know, North Carolina has the red wolf and South Carolina, and they don't seem to be as threatening over there, but they're a different type of wolf and different um they use different habitats than humans use so i don't think it's as sticky but um you know I, the wolf is just being a wolf you know it, you know yeah. it, and that's the way i look at it what it comes down to is they're here to stay and they're just uh, they're 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 being a wolf and let's let them be wolves and let's manage them with good sound wildlife management practice which we don't have right now i mean i know you don't i mean i don't that's my opinion i don't know we just don't have the research i've had so many podcasts on wolves and you look at the data and it's like they kill here in idaho uh 0.002 percent of total livestock in idaho over the last three years like it just it's just insane how we just want to eliminate over 90 percent of them yet when you look at the facts like they they don't really actually take a heavy toll on livestock so yeah. Yeah. And I can see the light, you know, Arizona never had bison and yeah. yet we have a, we have, we have a thriving cattle industry in the state. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's, it's not, it's not cattle country. You know, if you abuse it too much, it doesn't grow grass like it does up in your Northern latitudes. Um, and so the cattlemen are regulated by the graze, by their grazing, um, 
rules and regulations by public agencies like the Forest Service and whatnot. And so they got a lot of pressure on them, you know, to do things right. And they what they look at it is I, I don't need one more contender to deal with. Um, you know, and I can certainly respect that. I, I can see that. I'm a businessman. Um, I, I want to, you know, to 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 be a you know a success. And if I have a threat to my business, I could I I could I could see that I would want to defend it. So, at the same time, you know, the, what the wolves did in Yellowstone in terms of changing riparian habitats that the elk used to occupy and the beaver and came in and I'm seeing in, in a lot of our wolf country, we have a, a huge insurgence of, of beavers back in there and that's growing the willows and that's creating the, that, that, that riparian habitat that is so critical for, you know, in an ecosystem. It changes the, the way the fish are. It changes the way that predators that eat the fish are, you know, and it, it, it's, it's a good thing. Um, we got to temper that, however, at the same time with the needs of the human race. And uh, it's just a fine line. It's a dance. And I don't know if it's ever going to end. I don't know, it's... man. <laughs> I don't know. It's sticky. Well, listen, let's change topics because I want to figure out, you know, you're so busy with exotics. You have your own practice. How in the world do you get, you know, end up getting a National Geographic TV show? <laughs> Did you ever <laughs> see yourself on TV? When I graduated from vet school, the thought of me having a television show never crossed my mind. <laughs> and I had a, uh, a, a couple of producers that said, you know, you have a really cool job. You mind if we just follow you around and film you? And I said, sure. And so they did. And we came up with a um, with with a uh, they, they the original title was Wildlife Vets. I said, no, nah, that's not sexy enough. Let's call it Vets Gone Wild. <laughs> and uh, and so I lifted up my shirt and they blurred my nipples and, <laughs> and we created a sizzle for that and it went to Hollywood and then back to New York to all the networks and you know vets weren't you know a very sexy thing to be on TV at that time so it never really took off but it was one of my favorite sizzles I've ever done so we went down to Mexico and organized a team that I called the Jags and there was a couple of jaguars that had been illegally captured in Mexico. And they, in, in the process of being trapped, they had broken off all their teeth. And we went down there and, and the Mexican government chose these two jaguars. And they um, uh, decided that they were going to liberate them. But as you know, jaguars kill by crushing the skulls of their prey. Um, that's unlike a mountain lion that strangulates that's how they do it. And these guys had nothing to do it with. Mm. So I went down there, um, worked with Mexican veterinarians, Mexican biologists, Mexican government, brought down American biologists um, and worked as the anesthetist in the program. And I brought down a diplomat from the American College of uh, Veterinary Dentistry. Mm -hmm. And he put the teeth back in for these guys. And then we radio collared and we let them loose and we filmed the whole thing. And we presented it at the International Wildlife Film Festival in Missoula that happens every year. And um, in the process, it was awarded and uh, and m both myself and the co-producer won an Emmy for it. Wow. So I'm an Emmy award winning veterinarian. So um, cool. I don't think it I, I and uh, anyway, it's it was kind of a nice little thing. It, 
the gal who, uh, Carol Lynn, who helped me produce it, she's won like 17 Emmys in her life. Wow. And when I looked at it and I was admiring it and she said, you know what that is? And I said, no, it's an Emmy. She goes, no, that's a doorstop. When you get another one, then you got bookends. And she started doing all those analogies. But anyway, I don't know if that was part of it, but uh, I got approached by a production company for doing a show for the Outdoor Channel, which was called Wild Ops. And again, it was another wildlife-oriented uh, program, basically dealing with wild capture. And, and I've spent my whole career teaching other veterinarians and biologists how to capture wild animals and how to use the unique drugs that we use in wildlife to do so. We've done it both nationally and internationally. Anyway, we um, highlighted that portion of my career on the television. I served as the host and it was a voted fan favorite on the Outdoor Channel, but uh, it never went to the second season. So I figured, well, I got that on my resume. There's my sure. 15 minutes. And I'm good with it. And uh, and then I got approached by uh, High Noon Entertainment and said, uh, Nat Geo's looking for a unique vet program and are you interested? And so we created a little sizzle and uh, we uh, was unanimously greenlighted by the execs at Nat Geo Wild to to go for the at least the first season. We're still waiting to hear if there's going to be a second season. So Wow. That's that's very rare. I mean, very. I mean, just in television. For those of you who are unaware of the process, it is very rare for something to go as. It seemed pretty smooth for you, you know, to just get it green lit. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was uni unanimously green lit, wow. and they gave me a record eight one hour um, episodes in the first season. So usually it's four or five, you know, why they test you out, so to speak. But I got eight, so. That's great. Well, been wonderful. Now, was it was it weird though working with a full time you know production crew after signing on? Was it weird getting used to the cameras? And I mean, <laughs> was it hard? Because I mean, if you're in the zone focusing on operating, let's say on an exotic animal, and then you have a camera in your face, was it difficult? Well, I've never been uncomfortable in front of a camera, so it wasn't that terrible. I'd say with Wild Ops when we did that, they just kind of held onto my tail and and filmed as on the fly. Um, it was really easy and they had a crew of maybe six, seven people. Um, when Nat Geo came on board, they brought 16 people with them. Ooh. And my, my small animal side of my hospital is only about 1600 square feet. So add a busy practice and now 16 people um, in 1600 square feet. So it was awkward, but we got through it. And there was times when, yes, there were serious things going on. And of course, they would want me to talk about it more. But I was I was in the moment and and, and the patient is counts, you know, and that's how I, I told them. I said, you know, I do what I can do. But, you know, first come my patients and my clients and you guys capture as much content as you can. And and then, of course, we can always make it up with on the fly interviews afterwards. And so it worked out OK, but it was six months they were there and. Um, and we got delayed on um, our premiere because of COVID. They needed some pickup lines. And because of COVID, we were delayed quite a long time before we could finally finish it. So when they splashed their three veterinary, new, three new veterinary programs, we were delayed by six months or more. We were supposed to start in um, the summer. And I think we aired in January. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like anything else, COVID kind of messed us up, but Anyway, it was a real pleasure. You know, I always look forward. We were always national 
Geographic Society members. I look forward to that magazine coming every month and you could see places around the world and exotic things and cultures and, you know, occasional naked pygmies. But you know, that, <laughs> that wasn't the point. The point was I really liked National Geographic and oh. it was a pleasure working for them. So um, one way or another, um, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're excited. We have a huge fan base from it that we are always connected to. So it worked out well. We, I mean, people were emailing my office from Canada asking me about their dog, you know? Oh. And that, so, you know, it was crazy, but it was, uh, it, it, it was, it was certainly different because it was a huge, much larger production than, than wild ops ever was. Yeah. But is it now, are you back in an office now because you're the star and do you let other veterinarians take over the, you know, the animal patients or are you like, I mean, can I call the white mountain animal hospital and schedule something with you next Tuesday for my poodle if I wanted to? Well, it's our busy season. I okay. might not be able to get you in for, yeah, but you could get your poodle into <laughs> I, me. And, I'm kidding. I don't have a poodle. God, I don't even know why I said poodle. But <laughs> I was just thinking about, I don't know. Anyway. No, I still I still practice the way I always did. I've had fans come by and take pictures. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the zoos I work for is um, one of the top three wildlife parks in the country called Barizona. Yeah. And um, one of my fans came all the way from Virginia. She was a 12 year old girl who oh. said, I'm going to become a veterinarian after watching your show. And so I just hand wrote her a note and I, I said, well, you hand this to the gate um, uh, at Barizona. And it just said, please let my number one fan, Carissa, uh, into Barizona. And so she handed that note to the to the gate at the front of the park and they let her in. And, you know, she was just amazed by the whole thing. You know, came all the way from Virginia, traveling on summer vacation back to Arizona. So and then I've had local people um, around the state come in and stop and talk to me. But, yeah, no, I see new patients all the time. I'm not a, yeah, I'm, I'm OK with it. It may take a while before you guys get in because it is our busy time. Summer, you know, a lot of people in Arizona set up this way. A lot of people have two homes. They have one in the desert, one mm -hmm. up in the mountains, and they spend their summer. So we really ramp up in the summertime. But yes, I don't care what kind of dog you have, Corbin. I will get it in that's, if you ever stop in. Oh, that's awesome. Now, do you have one animal, though, you kind of roll your eyes at? I mean, honestly, like, because you're into exotics. Do you roll your eyes at dogs and cats? Because honestly... I don't think I should publicly say it. Well, like I love dogs and cats, but my heart is in exotics. Is that kind of how I you agree. are? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my passion. It's, it's, you know, that's why you and I had wild animals as pets, you know, yeah. which we now kind of preach against, but um, you know, they, we, that's where my heart was. You know, I, those books I read in the Phoenix public library were about, wildlife and wild animals around the world. Mm -hmm. I already knew enough about dogs and cats, I thought. But yes, most of the time, if I had to tell you the ones I roll my eyes at are the ones that I usually have a B written on their chart and a circle around it. And B stands for biter. So, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of on the defense and there's certain breeds that can be kind of challenging. Um, you know, chow chows, uh, German shepherds, uh, some German shepherds are great. Um, um, you know, so all the dogs that are now listed as, as um, dangerous breeds, although pit bulls shouldn't be on there. Because I love pit, pit bulls. bulls. I have a pit, pit bull. bulls are sweet. They're, they're sweethearts, but yeah. um, they just have a bad rap. Anyway, they um, and then 
you know, there's certain cats. And one thing about everyone says, what's the most dangerous animal you ever worked on? I said, hands down, without a doubt, a 10 pound house cat, <laughs> because you can, that cat will be sitting on the table and its tails twitching back and forth. And it's just looking at you. You don't, you have no idea what's going on in that cat's mind. And you reach down and in about five seconds flat, your hand is hamburger. Oh. And then you look back at the cat and the cat's just looking at you and the tail's going like this. And it just, it just nailed you. So oh. cats, uh, you, you know, learning how to read a cat is, is a, I think a challenge on every veterinarian's part, but, um, I, you know, I, and even though I have to deal with, you know, animals that aren't always so pleasant, it's kind of makes the job fun. It's, it's the challenge. You know, I've always thought to be a good veterinarian, you got to get in the mind. How does that animal think and, and how does it react? Is it a herd animal? Is it a solitary animal? Is it a male? Is it a female? Is it intact? Is it neutered? Um, and so what do you have to do to control that animal, get your job done? Well, it's basically taking away their means of defense. So for a dog, it's putting a muzzle on it. And for a cat, it may be wrapping it in a towel. For a horse, it's putting a halter and tying it to something. Now it can't run away. Um, uh, so you get into the mindset of the animal and you say, how is this animal thinking about this situation? And I think that's what makes a really good veterinarian, animal trainer, or even a host like yourself. You know, you, you can understand how that animal thinks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, we are uh, nearing the end of our interview. Do you have any advice for young listeners who are wanting to pursue a career, who want to become a vet? Well, first of all, my mother told me um, to try everything. So okay. don't be afraid to not try. And, and she pushed me to the point where I became a pilot and a scuba diver and, a, you know, all kinds of things. You know, she said, if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again, but just try it. That's the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice is what gets you into vet school is good grades. So learn how to be a good student. Um, and and then finally, I, I, I would tell you that get involved in, 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 in animals, no matter where your passion is. Volunteer if you have to until you can finally make a living at it. Stay busy, stay focused, stay clean and 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 be that once you're in vet school, you're going to be exposed to so many different disciplines that you may have never thought you're going to actually end up becoming an ophthalmologist. But, um, and, but there are zoo, um, board certified zoo veterinarians out there that, you know, if that's, if people are really interested in the exotics, um, you can become an avian specialist or you become a reptile specialist. So there's a lot of things out there. Um, but be patient, stay the course and you'll get there. That's awesome. That's great. Well, will you join me for the after show? Sure. Um, I just want to mention if anybody, sure. um, w I am on uh, Instagram oh, and yes. Facebook. Yes. Uh, as Dr. Ole Alkenbrack, if you'd like to follow. And I'm really super excited about uh, YouTube TV channel coming out. We're in the works. We got it in production. It's going to be awesome. So catch us on YouTube as well. That's, that's amazing. And I will include all the links on the show notes. Well, let's head on over to the after show. 
Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.